You're listening to the Economics Review Podcast with your host, Adi Golcha. From Congress to Wall Street and finance to philosophy, tune into the Economics Review to hear from world-leading experts on current events and cutting-edge research. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome back to the Economics Review. Our guest today is the national security correspondent for the Wall Street Journal and the former chief military correspondent for the New York Times. He is also the co-author of three definitive histories of the United States' wars in Iraq, The Endgame, Cobra II, and The General's War. His latest book is titled Degrade and Destroy, The Inside Story of the War Against the Islamic State, from Barack Obama to Donald Trump. It's my great pleasure to welcome to the show, Michael Gordon. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Well, firstly, as always, I'd like to start off by asking you to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your background as a military correspondent in the Middle East. Well, I was a um, reporter at the New York Times for three decades before I joined the Wall Street Journal. And uh, during that period, I wrote about arms control. I covered the Pentagon, but I also uh, covered um, seven conflicts in the field, starting with the invasion of Panama, Um the so-called Desert Storm operation to evict Saddam Hussein's troops out of uh, Kuwait, the invasion of Iraq, uh, this latest conflict against uh, the campaign against ISIS, Afghanistan. Um, I was with the Russian army in Chechnya, and I did some Balkan stuff. So I had a fair amount of um, experience in the field covering different sorts of conflicts over a span of um, a few decades. Okay. Um, yeah, that sounds that sounds pretty incredible. Um, sounds like you've been there for for most of the the United States' um, you know modern modern conflicts um, in around the Middle East and more. Um, so your latest book is titled "Degrade and Destroy: The Inside Story of the War Against the Islamic State from Barack Obama to Donald Trump." So I wanted to begin by talking about the rise of ISIS to prominence. Um, so after the U.S. pulled troops from Iraq at the end of 2011. Um, that was the the end of our involvement in the minds of most Americans. Um, however, in just a couple of years, we started hearing about a radical group based in Syria called the Islamic State that, that soon seized the, the major Iraqi city of Mosul. So, Michael, can you tell us a bit about the, the background of how ISIS managed to rise up, recruit fighters, acquire funding, and get to the point where they had capabilities far exceeding the military without being stopped in their tracks? Um, during the period in which the U.S., was in Iraq, the so-called occupation from 2003 to 2011. One of the adversaries that it um, fought with was Al-Qaeda in Iraq, uh, which the U.S. military called uh, AQI. And as it was leaving Iraq, it was understood that Al-Qaeda in Iraq had been uh, uh, set back considerably, but had not entirely been vanquished, and that there was a certainly a need for the U.S. military to stay in Iraq, to continue to mentor Iraqi forces and train them, advise them while they would do the main fighting. But uh, the failure of um, the U.S. and um, uh, Prime Minister Maliki in Iraq to come to terms on a diplomatic agreement that would have allowed U.S. troops to stay meant U.S. forces had to leave. And once U.S. forces were gone, a couple of things happened. Um, Prime Minister Maliki became even more sectarian. Um, more repressive in terms of the Sunnis in Iraq and ISIS is a is a um, Sunni group and this provided a more of a fertile uh, ground for um, militants to gain hold. Also, the U.S. was no longer mentoring and 
and the Iraqi forces and advising them on how to stand up against this threat. Uh, during this period, al-Qaeda in Iraq evolved into ISIS, the Islamic State. It's mainly the same people, including Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, who had been an AQI uh, lieutenant. And they began to systematically expand their power. They broke into prisons in Iraq and Taji and Abu Ghraib in a campaign they called Breaking the Walls to expand their ranks. They benefited from the civil war in Syria and all the chaos there and the jihadists who were flocking to join the fight there and could be repurposed for building the caliphate. And so, and during this period, they also uh, became more of a power military organization. Uh, when they captured uh, Syrian government equipment, they they used it. And later on, after they took Mosul, they had captured American equipment. So it was the same group rebranded um, and expanded. When uh, U.S. Um, military personnel went to Iraq in um, February of uh, 2014, uh, that was uh, General Nagata, the head of the special operations component of CENTCOM, and Chris Donahue was then head of the Delta Force. They could tell at that time that uh, ISIS was coming on strong and that Iraq's best forces were having a really hard time dealing with it. And they reported that up the chain of command, but it didn't register in Washington. Okay, um, so after ISIS seized Mosul, there seemed to be a lot of reluctance on the part of the Obama administration to engage in any kind of armed response. The president made it clear that before he would act, um, he wanted then Prime, Iraqi Prime Minister Maliki to be replaced. Um, as ISIS was fast approaching Baghdad, there seemed to be an imminent threat that wasn't being dealt with, and the Obama administration was heavily criticized for having an overly timid approach and underestimating ISIS. So, Michael, can you tell us a bit about your take on the immediate U.S. response to the invasion of Mosul and how well you think the situation was handled, given the information that they had? Well, uh, while President Obama has been criticized for um, not being able to negotiate a SOFA agreement that would allow U.S. forces to stay, um, he has to be given some credit for sending U.S. forces back to Iraq to contend with ISIS. Now, this came as a huge shock to President um, Obama, and he um, he didn't certainly didn't relish having to reverse his campaign pledge of bringing the war to a responsible end and in going back in. In fact, he upbraided his generals, uh, General Dempsey, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and um, Lloyd Austin, who was then uh, the Central Command uh, commander. But he did decide to go back in. But when uh, President Obama decided to go back in, and it was the right thing to do. Uh, he had a couple conditions, and one was that uh, the Maliki government be replaced. He didn't want to um, become a force that would uh, push back ISIS and yet uh, see Iraq falter uh, because of its uh, sectarian divisions. Another condition was he stipulated U.S. troops were not to engage in ground combat. Now, as the campaign unfolded, there were occasions when the U.S. did precisely that. But by and large, the idea was to rely almost entirely on the U.S. partners in the region, the Iraqi security forces, Iraqi Kurds, and, and later Syrian Kurds, to do the heavy fighting. Those were his conditions for going back in. Um, initially, it took some time for them to gain momentum, but over a period of years, a number of important adjustments were made to make the strategy more effective. 
Okay. Um, so three months after the fall of Mosul, um, a, a new government was formed, Maliki was replaced, and Obama gave his famous degrade and ultimately destroy speech. Um, so the U.S. started carrying out strike after strike after strike, and most Gulf countries signed on to the fight against ISIS. However, there, there seemed to be little appetite amongst the West or the regional governments to actually put boots on the ground. Um, like you said, um, instead, the United States aimed to train indigenous forces from the, the Free Syria army that were mainly occupied with the fight against the Assad regime. So, Michael, I wanted to get your perspective on the United States' um, approach to train and equip fighters, um, especially in Syria, not o only to fight ISIS and not Assad, uh, as well as the decision not to use a large number of ground forces like they had to, done the last time around. Well, there was no appetite in the United States after the invasion occupation of Iraq and the difficulties the U.S. was having in Afghanistan to send tens of thousands of American troops back to the Middle East to fight ISIS. I don't think that would have been a popular course of action. And it certainly wasn't one that the Obama administration wanted uh, to pursue. So what it did is it pioneered an entirely different form of war. I mean, during Desert Storm, uh, there was Colin Powell's overwhelming force. Hundreds of thousands of troops were used for rather limited aims to evict Iraqi troops from Kuwait. And during the invasion of Iraq, the U.S. marshaled a fairly substantial ground force and coupled with air power to depose Saddam Hussein and install a government. But this is very different. That From the beginning, the concept was not to put uh, U.S. substantial U.S. ground forces in the region to uh, create small teams of advisors who would work with partner forces who would do the main fighting. Initially, U.S. advisors were not even allowed to leave the bases in Iraq and had to uh, advise Iraqi forces sort of long distance. Eventually, that was relaxed over time because it wasn't an effective way of fighting the war. But the concept from the beginning was to let the Iraqis and Syrian forces who um, didn't exist at the time uh, the U.S. Uh, went back into Iraq, uh, uh, did the main fighting, and to back them up with teams of advisors, air power, and intelligence. That was the concept in military jargon. It's known as by, with, and through, meaning by partner forces. They do the fighting with American support and through a policy and legal framework. And indeed, there, there were allies who joined this effort, the Brits, the French. Um, there was um, a fair number of um, outside forces, Western forces who participated, uh, but with the U.S. carrying the main load and all in the context of a largely advisory mission. Okay. Um, so, I mean, yeah, just the, the, the other part of that question. Um, do you, what did you think about the, the decision from the, the Obama administration um, to, you know, have fighters in um, Syria, like from the Free Syria Army, only only to fight Assad, uh, sorry, ISIS, and not to, to target Assad as well? Well, it didn't actually do that. What, what happened was um, there was certainly a need from the beginning to go into Syria. ISIS's caliphate didn't respect the boundaries between Syria and Iraq and their headquarters. Indeed, their capital was in Raqqa in Syria. So if you were going to uh, roll back and collapse the ISIS caliphate, you had to not merely fight in Iraq, but you had to extend the um, effort into into Syria. Um, initially, the U.S. didn't have a, a Syria partner, but in August of 2014, not that long after Mosul fell, uh, the head of the Delta Force at the time, Chris Donahue, 
later regained renown as the last man out in Afghanistan, met with a, a Syrian Kurdish leader he had not encountered before, uh, uh, General Mazloum. Uh, it was a meeting in um, northern Iraq that was brokered by uh, Kurdish um, uh, connections. And they discussed a plan to assemble a force in Syria and support it with air power and advisors and push ISIS back to the Euphrates and then move down to Raqqa. The code name at the time was Talon Anvil. And that was in August 2014, uh, kind of a gleam in the eye of the Delta Force. But over time, it became the actual uh, plan for Syria that allowed the U.S. to collapse the caliphate. Okay, um, and so how how did um, sort of the, the regional partners um, react? Um, what, what, how would you characterize um, their response? Um, so you know that would inc- include the Gulf countries um, that, that signed on. I think there was very little appetite um, on their part to send ground forces as well. Um, but but how would you how would you characterize um, you know that their their um, willingness to, to participate and get get involved? Well, there was no need for Arab ground forces or desire for them, uh, certainly on the part of the Iraqis, a Shia-dominated government uh, doesn't necessarily want Sunni Arab states to send fighters there. And there was, the U.S. didn't need them. Uh, they played a kind of minor uh, role in the air campaign in Syria, almost symbolic, and then diverted their attention to Yemen. Uh, the regional actors were impacted by the U.S. role, particularly Iran. And initially, Qasem Soleimani, who was then the leader of the Quds Force, uh, was concerned, according to American intelligence, about the Americans coming back in. Uh, But he later became convinced that it was in Iran's interest to let the Americans do some of the heavy fighting through their partners against ISIS, while Iran did the same through its partners, which was Shia militia. And for the early years, there was a sort of live and let live policy between the United States and Iran and Iraq. In fact, I disclose in the book for the first time, there was even a meeting at a American Iraqi uh, command center in Baghdad across the street from the American embassy between uh, an American general and Qasem Soleimani in 2015. But this was all in the spirit of deconfliction, not in direct cooperation or coordination. What happened over time is after ISIS uh, was defeated, Iran began to see the American presence as an obstacle to its territorial ambitions. And what we have now is now a period well, we have a relationship of hostility between Iran and the U.S. and Iranian militias have attacked American troops and the U.S. government under two administrations has carried out airstrikes against Iranian-backed uh, militias. But for the early years, it was a policy of deconfliction. There was even a time when the head of uh, senior U.S. Special Operations General Tony Thomas's airplane landed uh, and parked next to Qasem Soleimani's aircraft. Those were the early days. That's not the way it is now. Okay, um, and so I mean, around around um, you know some some point after that, um, we we start also started hearing um, you know of, of reports about Russia getting involved in in Syria, backing the Assad regime. Can you tell us a bit about that and, and how that sort of um, you know made the situation more messy? Well, Russia intervened to prop up Assad in 2015 and sent in its 
uh, air power. And in fact, it's been unlike Ukraine, it's been very successful in propping up the Assad regime. It hasn't put in a significant number of ground forces. Uh, it's adopted its own version of by, with, and through. It provides the air and the Syrian army and Iranian-backed militias provide the ground power. Uh, but this created some challenges for the U.S. because now in Syria, um, when U.S. advisors went in there, well, you had the Russians in there, you had um, Iranians in there, you had Iranian-backed militias in there, you had U.S. advisors in uh Eastern Syria and then southeastern Syria at an outpost called the Antamf garrison. Uh, later, Turkey intervened and you had Turkish troops in there. And then because the Iranians were in there, the Israelis began to carry out airstrikes against Iranian elements in Syria, who they were concerned were shipping precision guidance systems to Lebanese Hezbollah. So Syria became an extraordinary complex arena for the U.S. to manage. Its goal was not to topple Assad, it was to fight ISIS, but it had to operate in a country in which there were all these other um, uh, outside forces and to try to do so while avoiding uh, a head-on confrontation with um, the Russian military. Okay, um, so, I mean, ultimately in 2017, after years of fighting, Mosul was liberated um, and, and the war in Iraq ended with ISIS defeated. Um, since then, um, they've largely been absent from the media and as a result, out of sight, out of mind for most Americans, um, with China and Russia now dominating the, the foreign policy and national security conversation. Um, so, Michael, to what extent has the threat of terrorist groups in Iraq and Syria to the United States really been quelled? And is there a chance we, we could see the Islamic State or a similar group um, once again rise up to the same level? Well, first off, um, Mosul was taken back after some very, very hard fighting. I was in Mosul, West Mosul, and East Mosul for portions of that. It was some of the most intense fighting since urban fighting since the Second World War. And I make some effort to reconstruct that and explain the strategy. But it took another couple of years to uh, roll back the caliphate because after Mosul, the emphasis had to shift to Syria and it wasn't to taking back Raqqa. And it wasn't until. Um, uh, early uh, 2019, that the last piece of territory in the caliphate was taken, a small town called Baguz in the middle Euphrates River Valley, and a really fierce uh, bit of fighting. Um, so it took a little longer um, to to do that uh, than, um, than one would think. It wasn't just the, uh, the uh, fight in Mosul. And to this day, there are tens of thousands of um, uh, family members of ISIS and a refugee camp in Al Hol who are uh, under guard. You can't let them go because they're ISIS sympathizers. You can't keep them there forever because it's a horrible refugee camp. There are prisons in Syria where ISIS fighters are being held. That presents the same dilemma: what what to do with them? And uh, then this campaign, which went by the name Operation Inherent Resolve, it continues to this day. It, it hasn't ended. What, ha what happened was the um, caliphate was destroyed, but elements of uh, ISIS are still out and about. And in fact, um, just the other week, the U.S. carried out a drone operation to kill uh, a leading ISIS um, uh, figure in Syria and put that out in a press release. So their operations in Syria and Iraq, uh, month in, month out, mostly of a mopping up 
kind of nature. And to this day, the U.S. has about a thousand troops in Syria, eastern Syria and southeastern Syria. It has 2,500 troops in Iraq to this day in an advisory capacity. And their role is very important. It's to keep the lid on the problem and not make the mistake the U.S. made in 2011 when it took all of its troops out. Now, at the Pentagon, the focus has shifted considerably to the emergence of China as a uh, military rival and to Russia, which obviously has caused a lot of um, problems by invading Ukraine. Uh, and so that's the predominant focus at the Pentagon these days. But uh, the um, this fight against ISIS still has important lessons for the future. One is even though our focus is shifting to China and to Russia, uh, the Middle East still is a turbulent region. So is Southwest Asia. Uh, it's very possible there could be yet other militant groups in the future that pose a threat to U.S. interests and plot attacks abroad and if that happens, the U.S. needs a strategy to go after them. Well, we're not going to send tens of thousands of ground troops back to the Middle East to fight them the way we did for the invasion of Iraq. What we're likely to do is use small teams of advisors, couple them with air power and reconnaissance and arm them with intelligence and use that as a mechanism to enable uh, local forces to do uh, the main fighting, the so-called by, with, and through strategy. So the techniques that were applied in fighting ISIS are very relevant to future uh, uh, well, potential confrontations in that region. And also uh, beyond that, uh, in a way, one could look at Ukraine as a scaled back version of uh, the strategy uh, the U.S. employed against ISIS in this sense. Yes, we don't have advisors on the ground and we're not doing the air power, but the Ukrainian forces were trained over eight years by U.S. and Western militaries, including the, the 10th Special Forces Group, and we're providing the weapons and the arms and the intelligence. So in its own way, it's a version of by, with, and through, though much scaled back. And the reason that the U.S. is operating in that fashion is it doesn't want to go toe-to-toe against a peer competitor with a substantial nuclear weapons arsenal. So there are lessons um, in this conflict uh, for the Middle East and for other regions of the world. And it's unfortunate that the Pentagon to this day has not done a serious history of this uh, conflict. In fact, it hasn't done any kind of history of it. There's just been piecemeal efforts by um, different commands and individuals and senior officials. But I tried to put it all together over a period of six years and uh, covering all facets of it, the policy debates in Washington, the action on the battlefield, um, the actions of allies, the international relations and how they were impacted at the time and put it all together in this book. Okay, yeah. So finally, I wanted to ask about the train and equip approach that the United States used in Iraq the second time around instead of the previous ground invasion strategy. So what lessons do you think we should um, take away from our experience against um, ISIS? You know, the, some of the mistakes we made that we should um, you know, be careful not to repeat if we do deploy the strategy again in f- future conflicts. Well, when the strategy was initially uh, introduced, the U.S. advisors, as I noted earlier, were, were confined within the wire of large bases and the Iraqis and other forces would out, be out and about fighting, but the uh, advisors would be uh, a bit remote from them uh, with the exception of special operations community, which operated on according to its own 
um, protocol. But uh, uh, an important lesson of this is you can't do that kind of remote advising. It took two years for um, the Obama administration to authorize the military to uh, send U.S. advisors uh, at the battalion level. Uh, so that they could help uh, Iraqi forces in that capacity. And it took some setbacks in East Mosul before uh, General Townsend, who was the commander at the time, issued a directive allowing advisors to move uh, closer to the action. So one important lesson is if you're going to advise a partner force, you got to be in the field with them. That doesn't mean you have to be on the very pointy end of the spear, but you got to be close to it. If you're going to be effective, it can't all be done long distance. Uh, This is an important lesson because um, there's a temptation to think that things can all be done over the horizon, so to speak, but they can't. Another lesson is that it's really important that your partner force have a certain degree of credibility, at least in terms of the uh, local environment. And the U.S. had that. Uh, With all the problems that Iraq has, its security forces had a reasonable degree of credibility in the eyes of of the public. Uh, So did the Kurdish Peshmerga in Kurdistan, and so did General Maslum and his Syrian Democratic Forces uh, in the Syrian context. So one, you need to be with the force. Two, the force has to have some credibility. It doesn't help to align yourself with a militia that doesn't have that kind of standing and which is uh, not respected or loathed even uh, by the um, uh, population. Uh, Another lesson that I think was relevant in this case is um, when the U.S. fought ISIS, it was careful not to allow ISIS to have a sanctuary. The campaign was not confined to um, Iraq. President Obama made the correct decision uh, to extend it into Syria to go after the rest of the caliphate. Now, that wasn't possible in the Afghan conflict where the Taliban and its uh, allies had a sanctuary in in Pakistan. And that was one of the reasons that effort failed. But if you keep these sorts of lessons in mind, I think the model has utility for the future, although every uh, template has to be adjusted uh, in light of, um, you know, real world conditions and the the situation in, in the country at the time. Okay. Um, well, those are all the questions I have for you today. Thank you so, so much for joining us on the show, Michael. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you. Well, thank you very much. And I appreciate anyone who takes the trouble to read the book. It's not as long as my previous books. Um, it's really only about 400 pages when you take away the end notes. And it was my best effort to synthesize a lot of very complicated events from the battlefield uh, to the policy arena. And I, I made an effort even though there's some portions of the book that can be read as critical of President Obama, I made an effort to note the things that he did right. Ditto for President Trump. There's some stuff in the book that's rather unflattering about President Trump's handling of the war. But when things were done correctly by his administration, I certainly took note of that. So this is not an ideological book. This is intended to be uh, a serious history Uh, with carefully checked facts and with uh, analysis, but not analysis that is um, in any way informed by any ideology. Okay. Um, Yeah, absolutely. Michael's latest book is titled Degrade and Destroy the Inside Story of the War Against the Islamic State from Barack Obama to Donald Trump, um, available at all major booksellers. Um, Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Economics Review. And as always, we'll be back soon with the latest.